Voices are exotic dancers enter one by one. Make love to all of your orifices in your seduction. Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. Today, the Midwest misanthrope and I are going to discuss the issue of doping in sports. I did a whole bunch of research for this and brought a bunch of information for you to the table. I also wanted to engage with you in the moral and ethical dilemmas of the matter. So I use some math analogies. Um, There's actually uh, math involved in the moral dilemma itself. And I wanted to bring that to you to add a richness, breadth, and depth to these conversations. I think it worked out pretty well. It's a grounded episode. Uh, there's a lot of data. It's like an hour and 15 minutes. So it's a pretty long episode. And the majority of that is me describing these dilemmas to you. Now, I think we do a pretty good job of working our way through the content, but notice how it ends. I'm not going to give it away. But when I come back for the outro of this conversation, uh, maybe we'll discuss that a little further. In the meantime, please listen to our episode on doping. Well, that's a good segue into our topic, which is steroids. Uh, Specifically Uh, doping, not necessarily steroids. But yes, definitely steroids too. All right. Okay, so doping in general and in specific, doping in sports. Mm. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed, man. Now, Paul, I don't know about you, but Mm. I haven't done any steroids. I have not either. Although I did go and get my testosterone level checked with my doctor. And he said I'm on the low side of normal, but just below the average. Oh. Yeah, which would explain a lot, I guess. Well, let me, uh, before we go any further, did did he ask you during this experience? Was he like, do you want to wrap it up? Uh, He did mention that it's possible to go into some testosterone therapy. He did not get into specifics. I did ask him about over-the-counter testosterone testosterone therapies and pills and stuff that you see on the market that supposedly boost testosterone. And he said the only way that you can... You cannot ingest testosterone orally. It's either a cream or an injection. Gotcha. So, all those pills are not testosterone. Gotcha. They might be something else, but they're not testosterone. All right, man. Cool. Well, let's let's get back to that because I'm sure it's going to come back around. So, I did some research for this week's show, as you know, and I wanted to get into a couple of different different topics, but I, a little bit in history, just one point in history here. So according to my research, the first official ban on quote unquote stimulating substances by a sporting organization was introduced by the International Amateur Athletic Federation in 1928. Doping is nothing new. And in fact, the ancients, uh, the Greeks used to chew on uh, goat testicles to try to get more testosterone in their into their system, which by the way, is banned according to WADA. I mean... You you cannot poss- chew on testicles. Is it possible, though, that that was just kind of like a cover-up? Yeah. It, you know, due to, like, somebody who's just like, you know, why are you choosing, why are you chewing on those goat nuts so much? It's like, that oh, gives you the competitive edge. It's not because I like the taste and it makes me aroused. You know, they just went with that. Yeah. I mean, testicles are delicious. Let's, let's not be silly, right, about this. Sure. I've had Rocky Mountain oysters. They were overdone, I thought. They overcooked not, a little bit, not, the ones that I not, had. I only had them once. Not, not nearly as raw as you like them? Uh, I think they just needed to... to... <laughs> 
to clean out the uh, oil that they were that they were uh, frying them in, and you know maybe just lower the temp a little bit. It's still you know I still want it well done, but I don't I don't need it to be like crispy fried, and I'm and I'm tasting testicles from I don't know two weeks ago. Oh, okay, so, so it wasn't, that, yeah, you were like these don't taste like testicles at all. Take them back. This is very disappointing. No, they tasted like 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 well 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 done testicles from a couple weeks ago, and they were using the same oil. I mean, this was Wyoming, so I, I'm not gonna, you know, they get a free pass because it's Wyoming, and I don't even know if they can read up there or, or what. I don't know what they do up there, but they're not they're not doing a lot. They read smoke signals very well. Yeah, yeah, they shoot things, and they, you know, they patrol the perimeter of their estates with uh, four four wheelers and and AR-15s. But other than that, I don't know what they're doing. They're just they're just ready for war. Yeah, ready ready and waiting. They're just ready for the apocalypse in Wyoming. Bring it. Okay, so moving on. So um, it led me to ask the question of why do we see doping in sports? There's actually a, a very well understood and detailed mathematical model for why we see doping in sports. Uh, it's the branch of mathematics known as game theory. Game theory uh, was introduced quite a while ago. The first introduction, I think, was in the 40s, but it wasn't made significantly popular until John Nash, who won a Nobel Prize for his work in game theory, introduced what he called the Nash Equilibrium. Game, Yeah, it's very interesting. So, Von Neumann was the first person to bring up game theory, and he wrote about it in his book in 1944. And in at a similar time, uh, slightly later, I believe, than that, John Nash developed his method of game theory, where he introduced the Nash Equilibrium. Uh, what he introduced was essentially a mathematical structure to rational behavior. That's what game theory does. And it states that once a goal is set, in the case of sports, it would be to win. Each player then employs a specific strategy. Each player will maintain their strategy as long as there is no incentive to deviate from that strategy. This state of the game is called equilibrium. Uh, when a player has no reason to deviate from their strategy, so they maintain their position. The equilibrium only works if all the players maintain their existing strategies and have no incentive to change strategy strategies after considering their opponent's choice of strategy. So that's one of the key elements, is that the players are able to uh, ascertain what their opponent's strategy is also. The key to the equilibrium is that each player is able to consider the strategy of the other players. So that was a little repetitive there, pardon me. Uh, I read past my bullet. But anyway, so this was first introduced as something called the Prisoner's Dilemma. This is, I believe, what Nash, or, or at least it, it was his work in its entirety about game theory, specifically the equilibrium, but he his first example was the, pl- the Prisoner's Dilemma. Uh, so the Prisoner's Dilemma goes like this. Two criminals are taken into custody by the police for committing a crime. They are not allowed to communicate with each other. Okay, Each criminal is given a choice. They say nothing and they go free. They rat on their partner. The partner then goes to jail for 10 years and the rat goes free. Or they both rat on each other and both go to jail for 5 years. In this game, each player has the incentive to rat. The criminals cannot know if the other player will stay silent. And so, no matter what, they choose to rat and thus miss out on the opportunity to both go free. So the idea behind this is that each prisoner, because they don't know what the other person's strategy is going to be, automatically rats because that gives them the option to go free. Okay. But if they both rat, they both go to jail. Right. So they end up in a worse... Well, they end up in a worse position than they could have. Yes. But any one individual doesn't end up in the worst position possible. I like it. So it enters an equilibrium and it's an an unfortunate 
unfortunate equilibrium because it could have been better for both sides. Right. That's that's you. the key to this, right? Got, gotcha. And so enter doping, right? So let's let's now talk about how this relates to doping. So let's talk about how this relates to doping. <laughs> if you map this, it, they uh, they do a grid to show game theory equilibriums. So like on it's like a grid of four boxes, and at the top is player one, at the side is player two, and it goes through their different options and and their um, potential uh, penalties. And gotcha. so you can you can map it out like that. I would just recommend going online and looking at that, but uh, that's not necessary for our discussion. But it maps on to doping in sports almost perfectly. So doping has a few components that ensure that athletes will have the incentive to take performance enhancing drugs. So the benefits of winning are huge, right? Most of the time, the winner stands to gain many very desirable outcomes such as money, prestige, job security, fame, better choices in sexual partners, etc. The penalties are very minor in comparison to the rewards. So in professional sports and even the Olympics and such that aren't professional, um, they really don't have penalties that match the severity of what they claim the players are doing. So all the major organizations say that doping is against the law or against the rules, uh, but the penalties are really kind of null, right? So they miss a few games or they get some small fines and they're small in comparison to what the earnings are or in comparison to what they will win when what they'll gain if they win. From the outside of the actual organizations, many of the fans don't really care if athletes dope. Um, They just want to see good sport, right? So they want to see faster, stronger, better, uh, more endurance, stuff like that. And in, in, in fact, as a matter of fact, many of the organizations themselves really don't care. Otherwise, they would they would have stricter penalties, harsher penalties. The performance enhancing drugs are very difficult to detect and it's very costly to detect them. So there's not a ton of incentive for these organizations to police themselves because it's very expensive. And if the if the fans don't really care, then why why do it? And not only that, but the drugs that most of the athletes use are quite difficult to detect. Um, plus, there are a lot of new drugs coming into the market all the time to beat or disguise or mask detection. And so it's 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 really a low percentage of people that are going to get caught. So that that lays out exactly the problem that we had in the prisoner's dilemma. It's, it maps onto it almost exactly. So you're in this case, you're incentivized to cheat because the punishment is less than what the reward is. I mean, if you think of like the Patriots, right? So they were caught cheating many years ago, and then there was Inflate Gate. What what real punishment did those teams have? What, Tom Brady only missed four games for Inflate Gate. I mean, that is nothing for as far as like an actual punishment is concerned. If I were him, I'd be deflating balls still. I'd be doing it right now because why not? It was a small fine. He still won a Super Bowl. They didn't take away the Super Bowl. They didn't take away any of his any of his livelihood or anything like that. So so there's really no there's really no penalty. But just to just to belabor this point a little bit before we move on to some of the arguments for and against doping is and I feel like this is where we'll have the bulk of our conversation is in these arguments. It maps onto the prisoner's dilemma because if you remember in the prisoner's dilemma, one of the options is to rat on your friend. You go free and your friend goes into jail for ten years, right? Well there's a huge payoff there to not cooperate with your your criminal buddy, meaning that you get to go free and your buddy gets 10 years. 
So you don't want 10 years. And so you're trying to get rid of that burden onto you. The penalty is really high in the prisoner's dilemma, um, 10 years in prison. But there's this immediate incentive to, to rat on your friend and not cooperate. And that's the exact same thing we're having in doping. So the reason why people dope is because they don't know what their teammates and the people that they're competing against are going to do. They don't know if they're going to dope or not. And they can't trust what they say because of the major advantage that doping gives you. So immediately, they don't cooperate with the system and not dope. They have this incentive, this huge incentive to take the drugs and be able to outperform and outcompete their their competitors. So I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah. The only ones who are outside of this model, which I'm sure we'll be talking about, are the ones who, who don't partake. Yeah. And th- those are the ones who are basically going like, they have a bigger barrier to cross now because they're trying to keep integrity while at the same time, uh, the odds are stacked up against them by not utilizing these things. So, yeah. yeah. So let's get into some arguments for doping. So the four doping argument, the first one that, that comes to mind for me is that this is, it's kind of the same argument for legalizing all drugs, right? It's kind of a, it's my body, it's my choice what I'm going to do with it, right? So any bodily autonomy argument can be brought down to some of these basic principles, right? So you could say essentially, what's that? Check me outside. I do what I want. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, why, why do we care what people do to their bodies? It's their body. They can do what they want. So essentially, a person should not be prohibited from putting things into their bodies. The ethics and morality of bodily autonomy dictate that a person may choose what happens to their bodies and thus what is put into their bodies, right? So if somebody understands what they're doing and understands the risks, or even if they don't know the risk, but don't care, and they just want more better performance, they may they may have a point in their life where they say, man, I wish I didn't do that, you know, when they're 50 and their heart's not working properly and they have dementia. That may be something that they wish they hadn't done. But at the time, they made that choice to do that. And there's not really much we can do about that as a society based on bodily autonomy, ethics, and so on. So could be, could be consequences to your actions. And, uh, yeah, there always are. Yeah, it's the way it goes. So by drawing arbitrary lines in the sand um, of what you can and cannot put in your body um, or what you can and cannot use as like braces or special equipment, like certain kind of training equipment. Some people some people spend a lot of time and energy getting equipment that simulates uh, high altitude training, right? So it's lowered oxygen levels and that increases your output and stamina over long periods of time. Some people just go to higher elevations to do their training so that when they're at lower elevations, they have much, have much higher endurance or something like that. Some people use braces on their knees or ankles or shoulders, right? They, you see all the those weird tape tape that people put on their body that's supposed to be a brace, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's there's a, it's, it's been calibrated so far uh, now with the, the performance science, I guess, behind the athlete where they're even saying now it's like you work out down at sea level and then you sleep in high altitude so that way your body doesn't rest while you're sleeping. But the whole facet of working out, depending on what your genome is, what you're looking at these days, they're basically saying like some people it it gives them no benefit to work out in higher altitude and then uh, in comparison to the lower altitude, some people work better at a low altitude and then they try to make their body struggle even more while they're trying to sleep. But then when they get back down to the lower altitude, they're able to perform better. So it's all it's all a question of like individual genome types. And it's just it's so intricate now. It's uh, it's fascinating. So, well, I mean, the thing is, is there are a lot of tools to enhance performance. Um, there's different 
different exercises. There's different things you can put on your body like braces and so on. There's food and drinks and drugs and all kinds of things. Why are we... Why do we care what people do as long as as long as long it's their choice? They're not being coerced to do it, for one. And then for two, the, I mean, like I said, it's kind of the same argument for all drugs. If if you bring them to the forefront, if you put, put regulation on them, it seems like it would be better for people as opposed to just saying, nope, you can't do it. And then they have to go into the street or wherever to get it from unknown sources. It, it's just... It, to me, it seems like it becomes a slippery slope, right? If you're going to ban certain things, then why not just completely regulate the whole thing? So if you take like biking, you know, uh, like Lance Armstrong, Tour de France biking, right? Every guy should have the exact same bike. It, they should all weigh the exact same amount. They should all be made in the exact same place by the exact same people. All their helmets should be the same. All their clothes should be the same. All the bikers should weigh exactly the same. I mean, it just gets, it, it just gets daunting all the things that you would have have to regulate if you're going to say, well, we're we're going for full-on regulation, right? And it completely denies this bodily autonomy thing. It's like, well, if somebody is basically fit, but maybe has a sprain on one of their ankles, should they not be allowed to wear a brace? You know, or if somebody likes a different kind of bike better because it fits them better, should they not be allowed to get a bike that is more customized to their body? I mean, it just, it just becomes this weird slippery slope where, okay, so we regulate this one thing. Why aren't we regulating all this other stuff. Okay, so yeah, no- I mean they try to they try to do I mean they you know there's there's an element of regulation that seems legit when it comes down to like weight classes and like different type of things like that when it comes to fighting. Yeah. And you know obviously boxing is more detailed than any other sport. But it, it, you know after a while though you, you do kind of look at it and just kind of realize that you know sometimes you have the you know the different dynamics of either the superior champion athlete is on dope, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or the superior athlete champion is not on dope. The challenger is going up against, you know, the best. And they're in the same type of dynamic to where sometimes people just are not physically as talented as the, <laughs> as, as the best athlete, whether the best is on the roid or not. So it kind of makes you wonder if it's just like, you know, all right, do you want to just see this guy go in there, the challenger go in there and lose, obviously. Mm-hmm. Or, 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 what if we make this interesting? <laughs> Give them a little bit of the uh, the old sauce. Well, the the idea that we should try to level the playing field to me is the ridiculous part of the whole thing, right? Go, go Why on. would we do that? These are already freaks. These are already people that are not normal. They're already elite athletes. And if they happen to have trainers or bike designers or equipment designers that are the smartest, then that's just good for them, right? That just makes that a part of their team that makes them better. I mean, this is, trying to level the playing field to me doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, and when you when you take in the bodily autonomy argument, it's hard to argue against that, right? But there are some arguments against it. We'll get into that. But let's let's do another pro-doping argument real quick, okay? All right. So, it increases the entertainment value of the game by make, making people play better than they normally would, right? So, you've already got these freak athletes, right? Don't we already want these people to be in top physical condition, whether they're using drugs or not? And don't we already understand that they are... They are a very small subset of the regular population. So it seems to me, and as a as a spectator of these sports, I want the I want the athletes to be performing at the absolute peak, at the best possible performance level that they can be. And if drugs get them there, I really don't know that I have a problem with that. I don't know I how mean, you feel about it, but yeah, there's there's different. All right, so let's 
Let's go to the low-hanging fruit, which is baseball, in my opinion. Sure. Uh, never really got into it too much growing up, but I did appreciate, uh, my opinion, uh, the best swing. Uh, it was more like art, which was Ken Griffey Jr. His his swing was just beautiful. It was, mm-hmm. it was these, in my opinion, watching him, it was like, that guy was meant to do nothing else but swing that bat. Mm-hmm. And, and he does it effortlessly, and it's, uh, it's cool to watch. Uh, now we fast forward to Mark McGuire. Yeah. Uh, when he was during that home run stretch for the first time, uh, to my knowledge, in the MLB, there wasn't a doubt in my mind that this guy wasn't on the sauce. Did I care? No. Did I want to see him break that record? Hell yes. When he broke that record, I was in St. Thomas campus and uh, around the dorms. Uh, I, I don't go to college there because there's no way I can afford it. They, didn't, they wouldn't want me anyways, but I knew somebody who was. And when it, we were actually walking outside uh, when the game was played and that campus erupted in cheers. It was just, it was basically being in uh, being in a parking lot with dorms all around it sounded like I was in, a, in an arena yeah like a stadium and, and, yeah. yeah and we all we just kind of looked at each other we're just like holy shit man he just did it yeah yeah he broke he broke the record and it was it was a great feeling and then going to the bar and watching the highlights and everything just be like man we totally took off at the wrong time and then, <laughs> but at the same <laughs> time it's like, you should have hung out man you should have hung out but to have that observation where the whole populace around you was watching the same thing it gave a different experience to where it's like that's what we want we want this sport um, for those who are not as invested as the hardcore fan of baseball yeah we want these sports to produce something and mcguire was the first acknowledgement of like that's why steroids or doping is good in 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 sports when you want to bring in a broader audience to spice it up uh because it's plateauing you want that factor in order to be like this is what could be happening and yeah there's an asterisk you know whatever uh but you know that's that's the different levels of watching competitive sports is that there's there's grace and style like junior and then there's just raw dog power that's just like just get to that goal make it happen and and that's a different facet of what can come i, I don't think that either one should be eliminated yeah it's so i don't know how far off of a tangent that i got no no that's good here, so all right well the thing to me is it's like so sports at some point are going to level off like we will at some point reach sort of the peak of what people are capable of doing right and we're going to probably reach it with dope Right, we're going to get there with doping, and we're going to find that there is a, sp- a point where we plateau just in, in our ability to be athletic or, or hit a ball. You can only, you probably can only hit a ball so far, or you could probably only throw a ball so far, or run so fast. Right, there are going to be some physical limitations. I don't know that that really bothers me all that much. I wonder about that when when that happens when we get to this plateau. I mean, we kind of saw that in UFC, right, where there was the there's like the golden era of like Chuck Liddell and Anderson Silva and, you know, Matt Hughes and George St. Pierre. There were all these guys that were really sort of breaking out of what used to be 
MMA and we were seeing sort of an upper echelon MMA. And then it got flooded with, with competitors and now we're sort of starting to see some of it level off. I mean, we're not seeing just incredibly amazing things like we were over the past, let's say, eight years. You know, like I don't, I can't, I can't recall any way an MMA fighter doing a move that I hadn't seen in the last, let's say, four years. Yeah, it's it's been a while. And there was that massive, you know, uh, performance uh, that was occurring that spiked everybody's interest in the UFC because yeah. of all the of all the knockouts and all the cool moves and everything. It, it, it's definitely died down and it's become more of like a, a point system approach to a lot of uh, the fighters um, where, you know, before it was just like, especially with the pride element on the side, the pride league, you know, it was just, it was still on that. It was trying to define itself, the sport. And now that it has a clear definition of what it is, it is definitely more of a plateau. Yeah. I mean, we saw, we saw people getting interested in MMA because they were doing things we'd never seen. And we were, they were doing things that, that they'd never seen. I mean, there was like guys knocking people out with front kicks. Nobody had ever seen that. There were guys doing, you know, strange Brazilian jiu-jitsu chokes that nobody had ever seen. Um, and then there were guys that were just so good at one thing that we sort of anti- we we sort of expected them to win just because they were so good at that one thing. And they hadn't really seen that either. I mean, I guess you could say in the beginning, like the Gracies and stuff, they were really, really good at just Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But it was sort of a different sport back then. But anyway, now all the guys know pretty much all the martial arts, you know, all the effective ones. Most guys know something about Judo, Roman Greco wrestling, uh, Dirty boxing, clinch moves, ground games, Brazilian jiu-jitsu wrestling. You know, they know something about Muay Thai. So, we're seeing like this plateau. And now, the thing that draws people in is hype and and theatrics like Conor McGregor. So, why is Conor McGregor so popular? Well, he's not that much better than any of the other fighters, right? He's a good fighter. He is really, really good. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he's a top-tier guy as far as talent's concerned. But he's not doing anything crazy new, right? He's not Anderson Spider Silva knockouts with crazy moves and, you know, vanishing <laughs> into thin air or whatever. Like, he's not a ninja, right? He's just a regular fighter who happens to be really good at what he does. But the reason why he brought in more viewers is because of all his hype, all the bullshit that he does off outside of the ring or outside of the octagon, right? So, right, right. that to me, that was sort of the signal that we're plateauing. And so, they have to branch out into other things. They have to hype it up. They have to find these, these showmen that are going to get people all frothy about new fights because we're not seeing moves that we haven't seen before. We're not, we're not, it's, it's not ramping up, it's leveling off. And so to continue to increase viewership, they have to, they have to sort of tap other, other things, other emotions in people. Well, and I think at some point we're going to see the record breaking streaks die off, right? Like I was saying, we're going to get to a plateau where you're not going to see any more records being broken because... Inevitable. Human it, body can only... Yeah, so there's much. just going to be yeah. only so much. So it's like, okay, to me, that's when the doping will go away and people will just be like, all right, well, we got to the we got to the edge, right? We got to the peak. So the other the other argument is why not just make it legal and give people more access to drugs that they have better knowledge of, right?
right? So get the scientists out there, get them doing research and studying these drugs at a high get level. Get over here, scientists. Get over here, scientists. Yeah. It, it, it'll allow more research. It'll allow more information. It'll allow better understanding uh, and overall knowledge of the effects, long-term, short-term, all of that stuff. And and just imagine if, if we didn't have this anti-drug culture. Think of what this could do for just the general population. I mean, if science takes on drugs full steam ahead and starts not just making new drugs, but testing drugs and and just bringing it to the limits of, of what we can know about synthesizing and how these drugs affect us and so on. Think of what this could do for the rest of us. I mean, if they find a performance enhancing drug that has very little side effects, but makes you feel better, makes you perform better, makes you run faster, maybe gives you better physique or more alertness or whatever, that would be good for everybody. It wouldn't just be good for the athletes. You know, regular people in their pickup basketball games could do better, could feel better about themselves, could could potentially live more productive, healthier and better lives. But if we're if we're going to outlaw all this stuff and leave it to, you know, whatever, the the one dude that used to make LSD for the government but moved to Singapore so he can synthesize other shit, if we leave it to him and then import these drugs and we don't really know what 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 they do or where they came from or what they're made out of, then I th- I think that that's just worse off for everybody in general. And I think the benefits of going into this drug industry full force with the full understanding of, you know, the full support of government, the public and companies, I think that just makes it a better overall potential for the population. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know how you, you feel about that, but where, where are you at with that? It doesn't make any sense to act like uh, there's nothing, there's no knowledge to be gained within it. Uh, you know, have, have the maturity to basically go ahead and say, this isn't going anywhere. Let's figure out, you know, what's what and then put limitations on it with the best interest. If the, if the best interest is truly for the professional athlete, you can only do that by exposing athletes to this thing and then, you know, learning about the long-term effects and go from there. But the, the idea of just being like, you know, that's bad. No, can't do it. Uh, no questions asked. You'll be penalized. And then it still sticks around. It, it's an approach that is, just doesn't work very well at all. And that's, that's where they're at right now. It's that transitional phase to where it's like that the overseers of these sports basically got to get with the times in, in order to understand more about this thing that they're so afraid of. Yeah, that's it. To me, the, banning this substances and these processes like getting your blood and then and then storing it for a period of time and then reintroducing it into your system and stuff. They do this all the time. It increases red blood cells and it increases oxygen to the to the muscles and stuff. If, if they can perfect a process where they do this and it's not harmful and there aren't as many side effects or there aren't as severe of side effects and it's actually beneficial for people and it's not dangerous like you know they're not doing handling needles and bags of blood in locker rooms and shit like that they actually have a, a place where you go and get your dope or get you know get doped or go through whatever process you're going to go through whether it's replenishing red blood cells or whatever to me that's just better that's just a better and they'll probably come up with a better way to actually do all this maybe doping isn't the way maybe there's another process that they don't they don't even know anything about because they're not dumping money and energy and time into doing it, that that would be not only better for the athletes, but would be something we could do. You could go, instead of going out drinking with your buddies on your birthday or whatever, hey man, let's go to the doping clinic and I'll get juiced. You know, I want a red blood cell boost and I, I need some more energy for next week's hectic work schedule, you know, and, and that's what you do and you walk out feeling good and euphoric and pumped and ready to, you know, go fuck your wife or whatever it is you want to do. Like the more customizable we can make these drugs to the, per- to the people who are using 
using them, the better, right? And the only way we're going to get there is if we is if we design them and test them and research them and get people using them. It's the same thing that we have to do for all drugs, right? Whether it's Tylenol or alcohol. Some people are allergic to alcohol and they still drink and there's not a lot we can do about it, uh, but it'd be better if they didn't. So for those folks, if we can find something for them that gives them similar effects as alcohol, but not alcohol, that would be good. That would be good for them. They could unwind like the rest of the people without getting sick or, you know, I don't, I, I can't remember exactly what the side effects are of taking alcohol when you're allergic to it, but I think it causes like a lot of discomfort and tiredness and headaches and stuff like that. So it's kind of like getting a, a hangover without having the buzz first. All right. So arguments against doping. So I, there were a few arguments against doping that I, that I read. I just kind of took the ones that I thought were most prevalent. Some of them didn't really seem to have much, much teeth to them. And for me, these are, these, these were the ones that really sort of had something to do with it. Like some of them were like, well, it's illegal. It's like, all right, well, whatever. Lots of things are illegal that shouldn't be. So let's get into the arguments against doping. Now, I don't have as much information because honestly, I, I don't really agree with this side, but I do want to tackle it and find out where, where, where the lines are, right? Where are they drawn? So one argument against doping is that it's harmful. It's been shown, research has shown that most of the drugs that people use uh, to do performance enhancements like steroids and I think it's called EPO and, um, you know, human growth hormone and stuff like that are long-term effects are quite harmful. They cause cardiac problems. They can cause dementia or they've been linked to dementia. Um, all kinds of muscular and structural bone and connective tissue issues. So people use these drugs and then either they didn't know that it was going to cause these problems or they don't care. Or they don't care until it's too late, right? They, they, they have that hindsight bias where they're like, oh, okay, well, now I'm 50 and I have to have a walker and I can't really do anything. I'm in constant pain and my heart and lungs don't really work that well anymore. Boy, yeah. I wish I hadn't done that as a professional, go, you know, whatever, weightlifter. Go figure. Uh, older person has regrets. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, this article has given us the information that this guy wishes he would have done something different yeah. with his life. Don't we all just want to live a life where there will be no regrets? I mean, isn't that the goal that everybody should want? Well, and this just, to me, okay, yes, it is harmful. And yes, I would prefer it if people didn't do things that were harmful. It, it has a huge drain on society. If, let's say, half the population gets addicted to opioids or whatever, right? Then there's going to be this giant problem that all the people that aren't addicted on opioids and are functioning productive people are going to have to deal with, right? They're going to have to make some decisions. Either we help them or support them financially or we, you know, I don't know what, I guess, send them somewhere else, right? Like create another community of dopers. I get that it's it creates a dilemma in the future and that it probably is in my best interest in some sense to, um, to keep people from doing things that are going to make their lives miserable in the future, especially because I'm going to have to pay for it and so is everybody else. But I just don't see how that's possible. It seems like a, a goal that's unreasonable to try to attain. I mean, you you just can't stop people from doing what they want to do, especially when they're putting things into their bodies or doing things to their bodies. I'm sure those yeah. people that have fucking those giant earrings that stretch out their earlobes are going to be pissed off when they're you know 80 or whatever that they did that. And I might have yeah. to pay for something for them to have 
have a special drug that keeps them from being all pissed at themselves, but I just don't see how we're ever going to stop people from doing things to themselves. Everybody is balancing what I want now with what I think I'm going to want later. And the the problem with later is you don't know that later is ever going to happen, right? There may only be right now because I might die or something might happen, right? So it, it's just this, it's this conundrum that we're all in all the time. Everybody's in living in the now and they're all trying to figure out how to make now awesome. And then they're always trying to figure out, well, the now that's about to happen, let's say, you know, two seconds from now, I want to make that awesome also. But I also kind of want to make the one five and 10 and 15 years from now awesome, you know? And some people think that way and some people don't. I know plenty of people that don't don't even seem to give two thoughts to what is going to happen to them in 20 years or what's going to happen to everybody in 20 years if we don't change our ways or whatever. And then there are other people that really sit and worry and think about it. I just I, don't I, understand how outlawing what people want to do now is going to get them to change the way that they think, right? Yeah, if the goal is to stop people from living in the now and to plan ahead for the future, I don't know why outlawing something is going to stop them from saying, but right now I want this. Not everybody is equal. So for the, in my opinion, these type of angles are always about this ideal human being that is made up in their head that this, we need to protect these kind of people, which in result affects the lesser human beings, such as myself, opportunities that are around to where I'm still having to follow the same law for some reason, which is, it doesn't make any sense. It's not for the greater good. You're actually ruining my opportunities by placing me in default in a category, which I should not be, which you scaled out and made up for yourself, which is, this is bad for you no matter what. Right. I, I, I beg to differ. Right. <laughs> no, I get it. And it, it, yeah, that speaks to bodily autonomy. It speaks to the point I made earlier. Um, right. About, you know, you, you can't change somebody's mind. You, you're just going to weigh those pros and cons in your head and you're going to make that decision. And if you make one decision that affects your body later in life or your health, it, you can't be, you shouldn't be penalized for that. And making it illegal isn't going to stop you. It's still, you're still going to be in the same scenario. It's just going to be for some reason, it's illegal now. And so if anybody else finds out, you're in trouble. So it just, it just makes, yeah, like you said, it makes very little sense. So the other argument that I have is sort of a two prong argument and these sort of go hand in hand. So Word. the first is that it's unfair to those that don't use drugs. So you've got a population of athletes that are definitely deserve to be in the game, right? They're, they worked hard, they're talented, they have the freak genetics, they they have all the other, they've checked all the other boxes and they don't want to use drugs though. They, they have a policy, that's what they believe or that's, that's what they think is best for them. And so they're not going to use drugs. Um, the people that will use drugs that don't seem to care or, or just have different priorities or whatever, they will reliably outperform the ones that decide not to use drugs. The drugs that they have now are, and that they've had for a while even, but the ones that they're using now especially are really, really effective. And you can get bumps of 2 to 7 or 10% in, per, in in your output. And 2% if you're at the upper, upper, upper echelon of all athletes is a huge bump. Uh, but 7 or 10% percent is just, it, you're not even competing anymore. It changes the game to the point where the people that don't use drugs but still deserve to be there because of their talent would not be able to compete. So that kind of goes hand in hand with this other argument of coercion, right? So coercion, you're coercing people to use drugs that normally wouldn't when they know that other athletes are using drugs because they just want to compete. That's what they chose for their life or, the, or, or you know, that's was the best path for them. They decided to be a professional athlete. They don't 
use drugs, but now they get into the big game and they see how many people are using drugs and how much better those guys are or girls than they are. And they feel like they have to. Otherwise, you know, everything they've worked so hard for won't be, will, will be lost. This one's actually kind of a tough one. This one's kind of a rough one to, to argue with because this is, coercion is immoral at its core. And this is a level of cover, of coercion. So I don't really know how I fall on this one. This, this is the one argument against doping that makes me kind of want to stop people from doping. Sure. You know? I, I, yeah, I see what you're saying, man. Yeah, it kind of makes I, me feel like maybe maybe they should do it because what about those people? You know, what about those people that just don't want to do it? Should they be forced to do drugs when they don't want to? I mean, forced is, I'm going to put that in air quotes because they're not exactly forced, but they are coerced right. into doing so. Right. And, and I think the thing is, here, here's a situation, in my opinion, where there's somebody who has been staying the course, who's been doing really well, and who has been shining within the competition that they've been get, you know, getting into, right? And they get to a point where they they do get to the, the top of the the top of the leagues, you know, that are out there for professional whatever that sport is. Mm-hmm. Now, to put them at risk, there is some there's something to that, you know, where where they're in that league now, and you know everything amped up to the utmost and now they realize that you know when these guys hit it hits harder than ever before when they run they run faster and I think that there are there are people out there uh, athletes that are out there that, that do perform at you know are naturally talented hardworking, and they do compete with people who are using steroids and they do just fine the one thing that concerns me about this model is that it kind of sounds like you're whining when an athlete uh, who has been going all natural gets up to the professional level and then is like, well, everybody's doing the steroid and it's not fair. There's something to be said too, where it's like, well, maybe the compet the, the competition now is such at a level where you know you're realizing you're not the best anymore. You've been the best in these brackets, and now you're having a hard time that the competition is higher, and you're you're basically saying, I want everybody else to stop the doping so I can be better. It's like, maybe you just gotta accept the fact that this is where your peak is and be proud of that. But if you're peaking and if you're still losing, whether or not the other side is doping or not, that's that's sports. That's competition. That's how it weeds itself out. Now, hear me out. If you flip to the other side of the scale, where in Minnesota this last winter, there was a kid in high school who doesn't have any arms. He's on the professional downhill skiing team. This kid's mother advocated for him, and he's got uh, a certain amount of time that is removed from his performance in order to stay at the level of the rest of the team and his competitors so he can still compete. Right. All right. So if if you can use the, I don't know, like the analogy of like, all right, steroids are arms and this kid is using no steroids because he doesn't have any arms. But you're going into a competitive sport and it was frustrating for him because he was, you know, he was basically dragging down his team and he still wanted to compete. It's one of those things where you're like, dude, you don't, in my opinion, it's like, well, what are you gunning for? 
what's what's the long term goal? You 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 want to get this edge, and then now that you have these extra seconds removed from your time, you're able to compete. What happens if you win? You keep on getting better and faster, but you they're not gonna they're not gonna drag they're not gonna minimize the time limit. You're always gonna have that time limit, so you keep you can keep getting better, but to create more competition. Meanwhile, that other team may be beating you, but because you have those extra seconds, they're losing. That doesn't that doesn't add up. So the same formula when it comes to you're you're not using steroids, but then you're getting beat by these other players. Now, because it's illegal to monitor steroid uses within the league and you can't use steroids, you're not able to actually clearly define whether or not these players are beating you because of steroids or not, but you're going to fall back on that crutch and use that as an excuse for why you should, you're not as great as everybody else around. That's why the whole illegal aspect of the sports that are using steroids is, is so taboo in my opinion. People who don't use steroids, they will forever have that card if they lay it out there where it's like, well, that guy was all on juiced up or whatever. It's like, well, yeah, but how much of the juice was he on? How much of that defeat that beat you was a result of juice? And how much of that defeat was just because you got your ass kicked? And the only thing that I can see as like a pro on the side for a person who doesn't use steroids is the situation to where if they were aware that that person was juicing prior to and if uh, and if the person the competitor who was using the steroids was able to be vocal and say yeah I'm using steroids it's a part of my it's part of my program it's what I'm doing that would give the opportunity for the person who's not using steroids for their own safety to acknowledge whether or not they want to compete with this person that should be that should be the the best approach in my opinion because this whole idea like with the USC thing where they go ahead and afterwards they find out oh this person pissed hot after the fight happens then the person who lost is like you know uh, it's such bullshit they're just juiced up or whatever and you're just kind of like I don't know I don't know if that's the case because you still ate that punch how much of that punch was that connected behind your ear that knocked you out was because of the steroid because that sweet spot will always fucking knock you out whether you have a steroid or not. But that person goes ahead and doesn't have to necessarily acknowledge that that loss. They can complain about that loss. And that, that to me, is just kind of bullshit. Like the DC and Bones aspect of it. DC... Well, hold on. I, I get your point. I, I think I think you're kind of missing the point here. The idea is that you've got athletes that have the talent and the ability at the very top tier, right? I mean, that's why they're in the league that they're in. And so these guys, if nobody was doping, everybody would be at least on some level the same, right? Because there are certain limits, right? There's only so hard that you can hit or there's only so fast that you can run. And these guys all run that fast and hit that hard without doping. And then when they get into this competition now and the guys that use dope are now able to hit 10% harder or run 10% faster because of the dope, that makes it so that even though you've done everything and you have all the genetics and you have all the, the, the talent and everything, that makes it so that you can't compete. So I get it as being Doesn't unfair it. on that level because that is you were saying like, okay, so how much of that punch was the dope and how much of it was you, whatever. How much of it was the dope and how much of it was just the guy's power? Well, 10, according to the according to the stats and the research, it's about 10%, you know, or, or let's be more conservative and say it's about 5%. So the guy that punched
punched you in the back of the ear that knocked you out would not have been able to punch you that hard had he not been on dope if he if he was just going by his own ability and i think that's the point i think that's the whole point i hear i hear what you're saying but it, it gives a lot of leverage to the argument for people who say like like i mean obviously when it comes to not doping however uh a person's athleticism in some sports uh there's there's an element of you know like mma uh person gets juiced up can knock a person you know if they're all juiced up on steroids is the punch harder possibly no it is harder that's the point the point yeah, is is that it, it is it, harder yeah you, you can't I, punch I, that hard unless you're doping sure but can the can the other fighter still does if there's a, a pressure point on a person's body sure i get it yeah and if that pressure point gets hit yeah the the relevance of the strength behind that pressure point is is kind of a is kind of irrelevant because the steroid piece of it makes you stronger and faster however the technique is always going to be in certain facets when it comes to a uh, submission move sure. or knockout type thing there, there's that element of it too to where like the dc piece he, he's lost the bones multiple times and i totally respect the fact too that dc is just like i don't want to i don't want to deal with this guy i think that that's a great place to be I, i'd love to see the fight one more time and some people are like oh dc's being a bitch or whatever it's like no actually he's he's been in that mode he's lost to the guy multiple times and he's able to say because this guy juices all the time i don't want to fight him and that 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 makes sense to me and i think that that should be the norm when it comes down to the the idea of steroids because at, look at brock lesnar right well, brock okay, lesnar, hold on before a big, a big monster of a guy who clearly doesn't have the technique down <laughs> you know sure. what i mean it's, yeah. it's like you can juice up as much as you fucking want to and you can perform the fastest bump up your performance increase your strength level but the technique, you know, what I mean, you look at some of the NFL players out there when it comes down to who's the fastest. There's still players out there who are like best hands in the league. Slow as fuck. Best hands in the league. No, I get it. I, I understand what you're saying. I think it's just unnecessarily mudding the waters. Like the point of this is that all things being equal, right? The dope gives you an advantage. And it could you consider that advantage, that advantage, excuse me, unfair? And I think there is an argument for that. And I don't think that the guys that are saying, hey, this is unfair. I don't think they're whining. They're just not willing to give up their right. future for an advantage today. And I don't think that that's a that that shouldn't be penalized. You know what I'm saying? Like I just don't see no. the I don't see the point of the whining. I do think that some guys whine. Uh, you know, like you see a, a, a stoppage that you think might be you know too early in MMA or whatever. But MMA, you're using MMA as an example. But MMA is unique in the sense that fighters can decline fights with certain uh, other guys. You can't do that in football you can't say well, well I, we won't we won't play the bengals because they they dope you know sure you, yeah you yeah. play whoever they put in front of you it's not an option so i get your point i still think you're kind of missing the point though in, in that way that if you set all things equal the person that dopes can get a spike of between you know two to ten percent of an advantage over you and it's not a te- it's not a talent advantage it's not a technique advantage it's not it, it's it's just the dope if if all if, sure. if you set all things equal these 
guys have the talent and the technique. I mean, Brock Lesnar probably that was a good example, I think, but he probably got to where he was because he was just so much bigger and hit so much harder and could take more punishment. You know what I mean? Like he's one of those dudes that is just ultra durable and freakish in that way. A tacticianer can still beat him and he has lost to tacticianers. But generally speaking, the reason he got to the upper echelon is just because he was big and strong and powerful and he can just sort of grab you and throw you down and muscle you, you know? Mm-hmm. And he's just yeah. hard to handle. But but that's why you set all those things equal just for the just to understand the point and then you say, okay, now add dope into it. You've got all these guys that are equally talented. Any one of these guys could beat any one of these other guys. Any one of those teams could beat any one of those other teams. That's why they're in the pros, right? Now you add dope to the mix. Is there a, is there a coercive uh, element to it and is it unfair that people feel like they have to do drugs because of the advantage that the people get that do do drugs? To me, that is compelling. I, I don't see... I, I love where you're going with this because that's actually my solution. We have we had a different sort of view on it initially, but the, the answer is the same. But we'll get into the, the, some possible solutions here in, in just a second. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to throw... I'm, yeah, I'm not trying to... No, no, go ahead. Much further, but, uh, no, no, go ahead. The, the, the Icarus uh, documentary here again when the guy decides to go on a cycle of steroids in order to increase his bicycle performance. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was interesting that uh, during the second part of the evolution of the movie, after he's done the cycle uh, and he does his performance, his performance actually went down. Now, the guy that was basically talking to him, um, uh, who was doing all the, you know, setting him up with the cycle of the steroids, basically told him, it's like, yeah, this happens. Long-term steroid use, or you, you have to use steroids for a long-term benefit. It's not something where you're just like, boom, you got it. You know, you may see an increase or whatever, but there's also a decrease within your, when you, within your performance, which happens within the cycle of steroids, apparently by, by the Icarus model. And he's basically, he told the guy like, yeah, this, this one, uh, just because of the longevity of the race, steroids, this happens. Like we get you on a cycle, you know, some performances while you're training, but you're not actually doing the actual, the long-term race. Your performance will decrease. Your body's unable to take in all, all the cycle. It's still getting acclimated. And then once you go for, for another year and do the cycle, your perform, you'll start seeing the increase and it'll start being more beneficial for you. So there's, there's like that element of like, yeah, you don't like the person doing the steroid that you're playing against when they're peaking long term wise. But you know, you don't have, do you have a problem with the person that you're playing against who's taking the steroid who's on the downside of the steroid use and you're able to have the edge of not being on the steroid? Does that make sense? It's just another muddy water thing. But apparently, yeah, that's I understand what you're saying. I just don't know that yeah. if you set all things equal, that it really matters. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, there's going to be ups and downs. And yeah, one dude could be on roids and break his leg. So, so what? You know, yeah, and then he can't compete. So, there's plenty of things that can go wrong. Um, the idea, though, yeah. is, well, I already went through the idea. I think yeah, we get yeah. it. It's and, just one of those things yeah. where it's like. Nobody nobody had any problem playing the Minnesota Wild when that uh, fucking flu was kicking in last season. <laughs> well, no, but I don't think that that. I don't think that that supports a position right. against it's an external, this argument. Right. Yeah, I think right, this right, argument right. kind of stands and it is a it is a troubling and I actually get into this a little right. bit later. But yeah, no, I, this is great because we're, we're really ferreting out these problems. All right, sir. So the, the last one uh, is, and I, I added this, I don't really, I added this more for us to sort of pick apart than I did for actual argument against doping. But it, it is an argument that a lot of people uh, identify with, even though I don't. Um, so it can cause children to use drugs because they emulate their heroes. So we need to care about the children um, and we need to worry about them essentially. 
essentially. And so the argument is that, you know, they know that Mark McGuire took drugs and that's why he broke the record. And so now they're going to want to take drugs. I don't know. I, do you have anything that you want to lead off with this one? Because I have plenty of things to say. It's, to me, it just seems obvious why this is a bad argument. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's not needed. I, I don't, uh, I don't connect with that one. Neither one of us have kids. So it's, uh, we, we definitely have a different, we haven't crossed that barrier. Once you have a kid, you look at the world differently. So it's kind of like, what, what would be the point of getting into that? Well, I just wanted to touch on it because so many people do cite this and it's, oh, for sure. to me, it's like, okay, so I love kids. I love all my friends' kids. I don't have kids, as you said. I don't think I have to have kids to have, uh, educated view on this. Um, I don't want my friend's kids to to do drugs or to do things that are going to harm themselves. Uh, but this gets back into bodily autonomy in one way, uh, but I don't think we have to go there. Um, but, but in another way, this is about educating kids. To me, this isn't about what kids see on TV. It's about what kids see on TV and then what their parents tackle as the, as the person, as the, as the child's parent. What issues are you going to tackle and what issues are you not going to tackle. I know plenty of research out there that if parents talk to their kids and stress certain activities or behaviors or, um, you know, do's and don'ts more than other things, that those kids are way more likely to not participate in those kinds of things. And I'm a, I'm a good example of that. I'm not going to use an anecdotal example uh, as proof. I'll, I'll let the research speak for it. There's plenty of research that shows this, but I happen to have an anecdotal answer that does, sh- that would side with the research. And that's that my mom heavily stressed not having sex when I was young. She wanted me to wait until I was older, you know, and, and in love or in a, in a marriage. And she stressed that. She said virtually nothing about drugs. She said virtually nothing about them that I recall. I know that she would get upset if she thought I was on drugs or whatever. But she, from a young age, never really said like, you know, it's really important that you don't smoke and that you don't do drugs and that you don't, you know, here's why. Here's the education behind it. It, right, so that you understand what you're getting into when you when you light up that first cigarette or whatever. And I smoke and have smoked and have problems quitting. And you know, I I don't smoke currently, but I still have problems with it. Um, and I had since, or I have since I was like 14, probably younger actually, probably like 12. Um, at least uh, on some level, I I wasn't smoking like a pack a day at 13. But you know, I was I was engaging with drugs and and cigarettes and alcohol and other things at a very young age. However, cigarettes. Yeah, I waited until. I was 19 before I had sex for the first time, which is pretty young in the grand scheme of things, but pretty old as far as sex is concerned. Most kids, most kids, because most parents don't talk about sex ever, right? Most kids have sex in their early teens, you know, 16, 15, 14, some kids even younger than that, you know? Yeah, the, the good looking people of the world for sure. Well, we even are the not, ugly we are ones. Not I mean, that. people, they're plenty <laughs> ugly people to fuck, you know, and they'll all, they'll, they yeah. all want to try it out. I'm just saying that statistically, yeah, statistically, <laughs> statistically, I was just saying, yeah, if, yeah, it follows the research. Children have sex at a fairly young age. Children also, uh, but we don't talk about sex, or a lot of people don't talk about sex. And the research also shows that if parents talk about topics and stress them and educate, the children are far more likely to do what the parents ask of them. And so yeah, to I, me, this isn't about what fucking 
what athletes are doing. This isn't, it doesn't have anything to do with what athletes are doing. There are adults doing things all over the world and kids emulate all different kinds of people, right? Yeah. So it's, it's really up to how the people that are raising those children, the teachers, the parents, the uncles and aunts and, you know, all that stuff. It depends on how they're interacting with the children. So for me, this is a non-starter. This doesn't even, this doesn't even have, uh, you know, this doesn't even have uh, an argument. I don't want kids to take steroids. I'm not saying I do, but it's not up to Ken Griffey Jr. (laughs) You know, it's not up to fucking Mark McGuire. It's up to your mom and dad and your grandparents and your aunts and uncles and the people that actually affect your life. Some possible solutions. Okay. So one of the solutions would be just to legalize the drugs, right? Let scientists take control uh, of testing and research and, you know, get chemists in there to make the drugs so that we know exactly what they're made out of, get the standards in place, and then let the athletes choose what they want to do. If they want to use them or not, or if they want to, um, you know, we don't, that doesn't, unfortunately, um, excuse me, that doesn't address that problem of coercion that we were talking about. It doesn't address the unfairness issue, but at least, at the very least, it gives everybody as much information, education, and access. Everybody's got access, right? It's not going to be an issue about whether you have enough money or or whatever. It's going to be, these are the drugs, it's part of the it's part of the spiel, you know. Welcome to the Patriots. <laughs> There's the room where you go to get your blood, <laughs> you know, taken out of your body and then put back in in six months. And there's the room where you juice up, and we got all these guys in there that are, you know, it's like a smorgasbord of pills and fucking shit to put in your veins and all that good stuff. So if you needed to get juiced, that's where you go. These are the guys; they're going to help you out. Uh, so legalizing, I'm actually uh, for this, but I'm also I think there's a good argument for it. It doesn't pro it doesn't uh it doesn't address the problem of coercion so i it, it has a it has a fault and i don't i don't love that um this does dress address the problem of coercion so i i like this one uh have two different leagues and this was this is what you touched on when you were talking about the fighting about mma right where they they can say i don't want to fight because that guy's a doper or whatever right create two different leagues have a doping league and a clean league and then find out what you know what are the fans like do they like the doping league better do they like the clean league better you know where where do the where do the athletes want to go? Do they want to go to the clean league? Do they want to go to the doping league? And if you're telling me that there's not opportunity to have a fighter from the non-doping league to say, I want to go over there and fight these fucking guys and have him not become a fucking superstar and not make waz and waz of cash and then have other fighters who are not doping and then be able to say, we want in on that fucking place too. And we want to go on record saying that we're you're insane. That would be huge for any sport if you created two separate leagues with that that's is where you get the superstars right there yeah i mean i think i like the two league solution i think it's it's probably unnecessarily uh, costly in some sense um i i think it would be difficult to implement uh all that kind of stuff because even in the non-doping league you would have to uh you would probably have to do a lot of testing oh yeah to ensure you know that they're not doping and, and doing what they're supposed to do. But I like the idea of it. It's kind of like having, and uh, you know, pardon me, this is probably faux pas, but it's kind of like having a women's league. Ooh, you don't like fundamentals, you son of a bitch. Well, you know what? Okay, I, I don't care if women have their own league. I think it's great. I don't care to watch it, and I know that most people don't care to watch it. It doesn't seem to be very popular. Um, See, because I, I, they are physically not as adept to, to perform the the duties now in the Olympics you see you know you see some really good 
competition. But like women's basketball, you know, men are just more interesting to watch. But like women's tennis, I think women are more interesting to watch than men generally um, in tennis. There are sports I think that women do better than men or they're, they're more fun to watch. Women's MMA actually has come a long way in being sometimes, not always, but sometimes more entertaining. And I wasn't talking about equality. I'm not talking about equal pay. I'm not talking about any of that. I only use it as an analogy to see what the audience wants. So okay. we, we split the we split the leagues, doping, non-doping. Wh- where do people buy the tickets? Do they go to the doping or the non-doping? And then we'll know. We'll know that, okay, there is a rift, right? There is a, a cut. Right. And now the new law is you have to be the kind of person that doesn't care about your future and wants to dope. Or people will say, fuck that. I don't... I mean, it is exciting. I like it. These guys are bigger. They're stronger. They're faster. But I like the game the way it, it should... You know, quote unquote, should be. And I want to watch these guys with their their natural... Their more natural talent, right? The guys that don't want to dope. I support that. So split it. Use the same stadiums. Just cut up the cut up the times. You know, morning games, night games, whatever. The morning games are for the dopers and the night games are for the non-dopers or whatever. I don't know. But make it so that we have a choice as fans. Because I think really it comes down to the choice as fans. If there are no fans, if people aren't watching, then you don't get as much money and the benefits aren't as high. And then you, you know, you, you have essentially less incentive to be that fucking good, right? So yeah. for me, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a potential and it takes care of this coercion issue. You have a chance as somebody that doesn't want to dope to really shine, right? As the best minus dope, <laughs> right? Because you're probably not the best in comparison to the dopers, but you are the best in comparison to the people that don't dope. So it, it, it solves that problem. I don't know how, how easy it would be to implement, but it is a potential. So the final solution, <laughs> pardon the pardon me for saying that, but uh, the other so the last solution that we have is um, greater good. Yeah, uh, this is uh, like a two-tiered solution. So uh, basically, we enforce a ban on all substances by um, well, all deemed to be illegal substances. I guess that would be a substance that gives you a boost of one percent or more, or something like that. And then test for them rigorously. Also, uh, make the penalties for doping so extraordinarily severe that it, it just sort of it solves the pr- the prisoner's dilemma, right? That that's really what this is. It solves the prisoner's dilemma. Though that other solution doesn't really solve the prisoner's dilemma as, as, as much as it solves the coercion problem, right? The the one where we, we split the leagues into doping and non-doping, that doesn't really deal with the prisoner's dilemma. We still have the prisoner's dilemma in the non-doping league um, and and some somewhat in the doping league, although probably less because there's no dilemma or there's still a dilemma but not as much of one. But this, this just makes it so that the dilemma is solved by essentially outlawing and having such robust testing that it makes it very very difficult to do anything without getting caught and then once you get caught the penalties are so severe that you you opt out of that aspect and you just you don't you don't engage in the dilemma at all so you just go back to being clean this too i i mean this too kind of this isn't my favorite solution because what we're end, what we're going to end up doing essentially is ruining people's lives you know there's going to be some fall guys and so we end up like stripping people of their incomes and and their past earnings. I mean, it really has to be severe. You know, if you get caught doing it, you lose all your sponsors. You lose all your awards, past and present. You lose, you know, you lose all of it. You lose everything. You lose, you lose fan base too when it comes to the regression of the sport. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that too as well. I suspect 
that in the beginning it would be there would be a lot of um, it would be tumultuous, you know, tumultuous. That's the word I was looking for. That it, it would there would be a lot of turbulence. There'd be a lot of turnover. There'd be a lot of problems, and there'd be a lot of fans that were like, "I don't like this. This is too stressful, or whatever." Because all my favorite guys are getting busted, you know. But you would hope that just announcing this new ban with all of the severe punishments, you know, we're not talking about Deflate Gate where you where you don't get to play for four games. We're talking you deflated footballs. That's against the rules. You're no longer a football player, and your past earnings are now rebuked. Your past rings are now gone. You're not a champion anymore. Your record's gone. You know what I mean? So severe that it it basically erases you from the record completely. And to be clear, when I say that they would be stripped of their winnings and everything else, that would be from implementation date forward. So if you put a ban in place and, you know, somebody gets busted, they lose everything from the moment the ban was in place. Anything prior to that makes no sense because there wasn't the kind of enforcement that we're looking for, right? They weren't enforcing it. It it was, everybody was doing it. it. It made no sense to, it makes no sense to go. So like, let's say, let's say Tom Brady gets busted for doping, right? Six weeks. The ageless one. Yeah. Six weeks after the ban is put into place with all these new, uh, you know, increased scientific tests, increased in the amount, the frequency of tests, testing before, testing after, all that stuff, right? Huge social pressure to stop doing it, all that kind of stuff. So Brady pops six weeks after this new ban is implemented. He doesn't lose everything he ever won. He loses everything that he won and earned from the time of the ban implementation to the time he got caught. By providing immunity to the athletes for the stuff that they already accomplished, it makes it much easier for them to to get into line, right? It makes it much easier for them to accept the new rules. It makes it easier for them and the governing bodies to implement the whole thing and, it, and, and for making the system work in general, right? Gotcha. That's, that was the... I wanted to put that caveat in there because uh, I was I was doing some research on it and that made a lot of sense to me. Because if, you know, it's a joke. What they're doing right now is a joke. They're not fucking testing football players. And the one, you know, they're barely doing it. And when they do get busted, they barely, they, they barely get penalized at all. So every incentive is there for them to do it as of right now. So you strip away all that incentive and then you say from the point, this point moving forward now, now is when it matters, right? Okay, some final thoughts. There are some real difficult problems to consider. The two that I found that were the most troubling um, were the problem of testing, how to implement this testing on such a massive scale. Um, it's going to be a huge expense for the leagues. You know, the billionaires that run the leagues aren't going to be as billionaire-ish, right? They're not going to have as much money. So you're going to see a huge problem there. It really it's has always, to... What's that? It's, it's always tough to watch a billionaire take a financial hit. Well, I just mean that it's going to be really hard to get any of this to happen, right? Yeah. Unless yeah, no the doubt, no fans doubt, yeah, yeah. want it and demand it, then it's not going to happen. And we all know how well protesting works, right? No. Doesn't do a oh. goddamn thing. And we all know how well people stick to... What do you call it when you stop doing something? Oh, when you boycott? Boycott. Yeah, thank you. We all know how well that works, right? Nobody boycotts. The last effective boycott was in the 60s when, when you know, Martin Luther King started boycotting certain things and because they were all had every everything to gain by doing it, they did that. But nobody boycotts anymore effectively. There's just too many people and, there, and people have too many liberties and freedoms. In order to make an effective boycott, you know, you'd actually have to get buy-in from the players or something like that. The players would have to boycott it because the fucking the fans are not going to. If football is being played, they're going to watch right. it. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
Yeah. I, th- I still think the problem, there's a big problem in the testing in that even the most robusting, even the most robust testing schedules and practices would still be very difficult, I think, to keep people from doping. I still think they would find new ways to do it or they'd find new drugs that, that are really, really difficult to detect. The other problem of, with this whole thing that really got to me or made me think twice and have some empathy for these guys is that problem of coercion we were talking about and the fairness. Um, guys that don't want to dope being forced to because there are guys that do want to dope or that don't care, right? I can totally understand sitting there and thinking, God, you know, I'm going to do this drug and it's going to ruin my life in my 40s and 50s, but I have to to stay competitive or whatever, or feeling like you have to. Maybe you don't have to in, in the strict sense of the word, but you you, you might not ha- feel like you have any other options and that might be a totally valid position to take due to your situation and whatever your financial issues are and, and family and friends and all that stuff, right? So I just feel for those guys and that is a real problem. I'm not sure that any of these things that we have talked about today would actually solve that problem. I think you'd still have that problem to some degree in the anti-doping league. If we if we were to split the leagues and have a doping league and an anti-doping league, just to ensure that everything's going correctly, we would also have to have the solution of banning all substances, testing for them rigorously and making penalties for doping extraordinarily severe in the anti-doping league. The thing that the thing that we really get a benefit from in having two leagues is that we get to figure out what do the fans want. You know, you really get a line in the sand, a sharp line in the sand. Okay, this is what the fans want. Uh, but we would have to implement the other the other solution to ban all substances and up the penalties for taking substances in the non-doping league because there's still going to be pro- a problem in that league. There, It doesn't solve the prisoner's dilemma. Life brings pressure, you know. Uh, well, you, you can't cover all the bases. And it's it's going to fuck with you. And you're going to have to make some decisions but you know, I don't. I don't feel bad for anybody who's in that position because it's kind of like you. You're good enough to be in that position. I can pony up, make a choice, and see how it goes. But that's life, man. You know. Yeah, I, I'm just saying I, that problem of coercion to me is really that's the one I feel like has the most teeth and is the one to solve. Um, these other problems to me don't don't have much teeth, right? I mean, it's really sure, hard to sure. say. Oh, because it's bad for you. Well, that plays a role in this coercion conundrum, but it doesn't play a role in whether somebody puts juice into their body, especially if they don't give a shit if it's bad for them. So it doesn't affect the entire population. But I'm sure that every juicer at some point sits down and thinks, okay, am I going to juice or am I not going to juice? And there's some pressure to juice, knowing that they're in the prisoner's dilemma. I mean, that's the whole point is there's the dilemma itself mathematically explains the kind of coercion that all the players are under. Now, some players probably don't feel the pressure as much because they're like, fuck yeah, I'm going to juice. I can't wait to get juice. You know what I mean? I don't care what happens to me when I'm 50. You only live once. And with the completion of that conversation, I'm wondering if some of you are feeling a little unsatisfied. I know that this is a really tough decision to make, and there isn't really, based on what we just talked about, there isn't really a clear conclusion or a clear example of what it is we should exactly do. I think most people, myself included, would probably like to split the leagues up, and one league would be enforced heavily, and the other would be a doping league. Because, as we were saying, the problem of coercion is a real problem. And that does seem, at least uh, at face value, the way that we described it in this conversation, that does seem to be an injustice. But I don't really know exactly what the answer is. So maybe you could email me at earseductionpodcast at gmail.com 
and let me know what you think. It's it's a really tough decision to make, and it affects something that most people really enjoy, and that's sports. I know I have some sports that I like. I have some other sports that I detest, but um, they're all affected by whether or not the players take dope. And as you could hear by the end by the end of this conversation, we don't really know what the answer actually is. Thank you so much for listening to Ear Seduction. It's been a real pleasure. Bye.